Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate, and as my listeners know, I love New York. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture, and vibe of our amazing city. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians and artists, and the occasional elected official. On some shows, like tonight, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood. We explore its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? Sometimes we host shows about an interesting and vital color of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. On prior episodes, which you can also get on our archive and podcast, we've covered topics as diverse and illuminating as American presidents who came from, lived in, or who had some history here in New York, about half of them actually. We've talked about the history of women activists and the suffrage movement in the city, history of African Americans in New York who were here actually since the time of the Dutch, well, they were enslaved people at that time. Talked about the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've talked about the history of bicycles and cycling, the history of punk and opera. Those were separate programs, by the way. We've talked about our public library system. We actually have three, including one from the borough we're going to be visiting tonight. We've also visited some of our greatest train stations and even talked about some of our bridges. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can get us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. Tonight, we're journeying to a neighborhood in Queens, and I want to talk for a moment about Queens. Um, New York is a, is a big city. We've got about eight and a half million people, um, and it's made up of boroughs. Frequently, when people from outside New York think of New York City, they think of Manhattan. Well, most of the city is actually outside of Manhattan. The borough of Queens is the city's largest. It's 109 square miles. Get that, 109 square miles, and it's as big as cities such as Shreveport. It's the same size as Charleston, and the population of Queens is a little more than two and a quarter million. It's about the same size as Houston, Texas, and if it were its own city, one borough in New York City would be the fifth largest city in the United States, but it's only a fraction of the city, and it's the borough of Queens. Tonight, we're going to be journeying to Whitestone, which is at the northern tip of Queens, right in the middle. Uh, Our first guest is a returning regular to Rediscovering New York, Jason Antos. Jason is a journalist and author of six well-received books on the borough of Queens. He's working on his seventh, which we'll talk about. He's a graduate of the University of Miami and is a lifelong New Yorker. His family has lived in the five boroughs since 1913. His first book, which actually was on the history of, you guessed it, Whitestone. It was published in 2006 when he was just 25. In 2007, Jason wrote the first history book ever written on Shea Stadium. I still call that stadium Shea Stadium. I still haven't gotten used to City Field. And a lot of uh, New York natives still haven't gotten used to it as well. Uh, And that book is currently in its fourth printing. Jason's published other books, Flushing Then and Now, Jackson Heights, Images of America, He's published a book about Corona and also Queens then and now. His latest book, which is at the printer, is will be on the history of Douglaston and Little Neck. Jason recently is the associate editor of the Queens Chronicle. And if that's not enough, he's the president of the Queens Historical Society. Jason, a hearty welcome back to Rediscovering New York. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me on again. 
You're not only from New York, Jason, but you are from Queens. Where in Queens did you grow up? Well, up in Whitestone. Oh, you are? Okay. I thought you moved to your family moved to Whitestone. My bad. I should know that by now. Um, and you live in Whitestone now. When did you first become interested in New York history? Well, I've always been fascinated uh, by New York history. It really started with my grandparents. Uh, my grandmother and grandfather, this is on my, on my mother's side, uh, they were born in the Lower East Side on uh, Broom Street and Allen, uh, the tenement building, which was in those days the, the uh, Jewish Lower East Side. And uh, that tenement building that they grew up in, that they were actually physically born in, is still there to this very day. It's still there on the corner of Broom and Allen, 279 Broom. And, uh, you know, they were, uh, in, in their life, they really enjoyed speaking and, and reminiscing about their time growing up in New York City because they lived in Manhattan and they lived for many years in Brooklyn, in Flatbush. And that's where my mother was born. And then in the early 60s, they moved here to Whitestone. Uh, but they were, they got into, so, you know, they had their own business. My grandfather was in the paper wholesale business for many years and uh, his uh, up in the Bronx actually was based in the South Bronx. So they had uh, life and adventures and stories that spanned pretty much uh, almost all five boroughs. Yeah, I was going to say that's so classic New York. Businesses in the Bronx grew up in, in, in on the Lower East Side, lived in Flatbush, of course, in Brooklyn, and, uh, and then moved to Queens. Um, how did you get interested particularly in Queens history, Jason, from New York history? Well, Growing up here in Whitestone, uh, I'm in the northern, <clears throat> excuse me, the northern tip of the town, which is uh, Beechhurst. And uh, in those days, growing up, there was a lot of a uh, lot of old homes that were situated by where I am down on Powell's Cove. We had the Hammerstein Mansion, which was uh, around the time that I was born, was a restaurant called Ripples. And there was a couple of other old homes that were across from the building where I grew up, and I was always so intrigued and so fascinated about those homes. And I think one of the reasons was because they were so palatial and so big, but they were abandoned. Nobody lived in them. And I would always ask my family, you know, who, who lived there? Like, why would such a huge estate, such a big property not be lived in? You know, and they told me that this, it belonged to certain people, certain uh, historical figures, uh, some uh, all of which they, it was owned by celebrities. Uh, the Hammerstein Mansion it was owned by Arthur Hammerstein. Uh, you had a home that was on 162nd in Powell's Cove that was owned and built by Thurston the Magician, who was the, um, the uh, forerunner to Houdini. So growing up with all these things, and, and my first foray into the history of Whitestone was when I was in grade school in PS193. We had to write a book report uh, on New York City, and I chose to do the uh, Hammerstein and the Thurston uh, homes, uh, which at that time were still standing and were still uh, vacant, um, completely fallen into neglect. And that's that was really how I started. How old were you when you wrote that that well, report? I think it was in the fifth grade. Wow! And you've been bitten with the bug of Queen's history ever since. Absolutely. That's great. I, I want to ask you, I'll ask you later on about, about why some of those houses got abandoned and what happened to them. But, but let's start out generally with Whitestone. And I got to ask you this out of the gate because, you know, there are so, you know, different neighborhoods of New York get different names for different reasons. Um, how did Whitestone get its name? So Whitestone uh, is actually a suburb of Greater Flushing. So it's Flushing Township. 
And Flushing Township uh, includes Whitestone, it includes Beechhurst, it includes Bayside, Little Neck, even Douglaston. Uh, and uh, so Whitestone is uh, an offshoot of Greater Flushing Township. It basically was a farming community. Uh, Flushing uh, is the word Flushing comes from the word, the Dutch word Vlissingen, which means salt meadow. And there is a Vlissingen in Holland that is a major port city. Um, and I guess it was very reminiscent to the people who first settled here from who were the Dutch of their home in Vlissingen. And then it was named that. And then it's uh, when the British came, they could not pronounce Vlissingen and they pronounced it as Flushing. They kind of did like a, a more phonetical pronunciation of the word. And then it got corrupted from that point on. But Whitestone, the term, the, the legend is, is that um, when the first settlers came here, when they traveled down the East River into the Long Island Sound, there was a tremendous uh, limestone boulder that was a glacial erratic that stood on a very otherwise pristine beachfront. And uh, they took it as a good omen because they could actually, it was so uh, white and pristine that they could actually, it reflected the moonlight and it was almost like a beacon. They could actually see the shoreline in the dead of night just because of that stone, because of that tremendous boulder. And so they named it from that. Is it still there? Uh, no, it is not still there. Uh, I think it was cleared away to make way for the uh, the right of way for the Whitestone Bridge in 1937. Oh, and I'm going to ask you about that bridge a little bit later in our Surely. segment. Um, by the way, it, it's interesting. Uh, uh, Flushing, Vlissingen, um, that was of all the places in New Netherland that could have been named that. That was the uh, uh, the town in the Netherlands that was the home of the Dutch West India Company. Yes. And of course, New Netherland was run. The Dutch had company towns, unlike the English and the Spanish and the Portuguese. Um, like many places, Jason, in what would later become Greater New York City, um, Dutch settlers bought uh, a lot of a lot of land. Did they actually buy what would become Whitestone from or, or trade with the local Lenape people for the right to use it? They did. Uh, they actually, the legend is, is that um, they traded one hatchet for every 50 acres of land uh, to the Native Americans uh, for to purchase it, to create them the land, to farmland and homesteads. You know, I want to ask you a, a general question that I don't think I've ever asked anyone else on the show, even though I'm interested and in, we always talk about um, uh, Native peoples who were living in what became neighborhoods, you know, back around the time of the Dutch. Did, did the local Lenape tribes have a sense that, the people who were giving them these goods, who were "quote unquote" buying the land, actually were were buying it permanently, or did they think more that they were somehow renting it or or or, or leasing it, taking without having a right to permanent title to it? Sure. Well, the native peoples in general, uh, they did not uh, consider ownership of land to be a, a thing. You know, to them, land belonged to everyone. It was wherever you settled, and that's where you you lived. So um, to them, I, I think they might have interpreted that this was the method of, of accepting land or, you know, trading goods so that they could settle there. But I think I, they understood that the land now belonged to the person who was making the trade, but they didn't know that it was going to be like evolved into a private property that this is my land, this is my property line, my boundary, and you cannot come on here. You know, they just thought that that was a, 
uh, a mechanism or a tool to kind of say this is my where I'm going to settle. Um, but but you guys are welcome to cross or or you know enter, uh, which it was in their communities and their cultures. So um, that that's what happened. Oh, and sadly, uh, uh, like so many uh, Native peoples in the Americas in the New World, uh, they did not have resistance to the diseases that Europeans brought. So, you know, throughout what became the United States and Central and South America, um, uh, local peoples were depopulated partly because of because of rampant disease, including smallpox. Um, after the English took over New Netherland in 1664, did English settlers move into what would become Whitestone? Sure. Uh, the English uh, had originally lived in what we now regard today as New England. Uh, they came across the Long Island Sound and originally settled in the eastern end of Long Island. That's why in the five boroughs, you tend to find towns that have more of a Dutch name. And a lot of the towns in Nassau, especially Suffolk, uh, have more English sounding names after places uh, and towns that you would find in England. Um one of the reasons uh, when they landed on the eastern end of Long Island, they had to get a patent for land from whoever the director general of New Netherlands or New Amsterdam was at the time, be it Director General Keefe or Stuyvesant. And they were granted these land patterns because they wanted people to live out in the what they called like the, the, the foreign territory. Because when you got outside of Manhattan Island and Brooklyn or Western Queens, you were basically like in, in the wilderness. So they were, you know, they they obliged the British to settle out there. Another reason was because the Dutch, their relationship with Native Americans was very poor. Uh, they did not get along with Native Americans. They did not know how to trade properly. They did not know how to communicate with them properly. The English, on the other hand, had much better experience. So the methodology here was that they would settle out there where there was more Native Americans and that they would be better better able to communicate and negotiate with them. Mm. Uh, well, we're going to take a break in a, in a minute or two, but but before we do, I want to uh, move to um, uh, the Revolutionary War period in, in Whitestone. There was a very important person who lived in the part of Queens that would become Whitestone. Most people who live in or who've traveled through Queens actually recognize his name, uh, but they really don't know who he was and what he did, and that's Francis Lewis. Sure. Uh, who was Francis Lewis? What, what did he do? What, what became of his, of, his, of his stake in what would become Whitestone? Well, Francis Lewis is an interesting character. Uh, he was uh, from England. Uh, he was an Englishman who settled in the farmland on the northern end of Whitestone by the what would be known today as the East River. Uh, that's where his property was. He owned pretty much most of the northern part of Whitestone. He owned. He was a, a principal landowner in the town. Um, as a person, he is one of the members of the New York delegation who signed the Declaration of Independence. Um, he, unfortunately, was a war profiteer. He kind of played both sides. Uh, Queens County in those days was uh, primarily pro-Tory, which means that you were for the British. So the uh, residents of Queens were not too fond of the revolution or wanting to break away from uh, from England. So, but Francis Lewis kind of played both sides of the of the of the of the war of the revolution to see what would yield him profits. Um, when he signed the Declaration of Independence, uh, 
because he was a British subject, it was a sign of treason. And uh, the uh, a group of soldiers uh, actually stormed Whitestone in the dead of night and uh, to find him, to place him under arrest. He was not there. He was in, in Philadelphia at the time. So they burnt down his entire homestead. And instead of taking him captive, they took his wife captive, which was very rare in those days. They did not, you know, mess with, uh, they did not uh, arrest children or especially women. They would come to arrest whoever they were coming to arrest, but they took her in his place and she was kept in a, in a prison ship uh, just off of the battery of Lower Manhattan. And it was actually General Washington who negotiated for her release. But she was in there for about two months and in under very, very uh, dirty, unsanitary conditions. And when she was released, she never fully uh, recovered emotionally. And she died a few years later. Wow. It's very, you know, it sounds like what befell, you know, 10,000 plus American soldiers who were on those horrible prison ships in Wallabout Bay with, you know, sure. the Brooklyn Navy Yard. All right, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Jason Antos, the president of the Queens Historical Society and noted author now of seven books. We'll be back in a moment. Thank you. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back to Rediscovering New York. And can you believe this is our 80th episode so far? Wow. And uh, we are visiting Whitestone, Queens, across the East River from where I am to where Jason and our second guest are. Um, our first guest is Jason Antos. Jason is a noted author and the president of the Queens Historical Society. Jason, you're a pretty noted author. You're, you have, you've published six books, including on Jackson Heights, Flushing, Whitestone, 
the beloved Shea Stadium. And now you've just gone to, you've just looked at the Proust a couple of weeks ago for your next book. What is it? Well, um, we're going to do uh, Douglaston and Little Neck, thank God, has been completed. It, was, it went to the printer about two weeks ago, uh, but due to the uh, COVID and the slowdown in terms of work, it's not. it was supposed to come out in December, but it's been pushed now until late February. So but we're looking very much forward to that coming out. And I don't know. Uh, I, I, I think the next book, we, we're, I'm looking at Sunnyside, Woodside, um, I probably would like to do something with the Queens Historical Society uh, because the society in general hasn't really published a book in a while. So maybe the next venture would be in collaboration with them. Well, I've said it 108 square miles. Queens is big enough. So you may hopefully will never run out of material. Absolutely. Um, I've, you know, hopefully I'm a run out of material for this show, but, but we'll have to see about that. Um, uh, people wanted to find out about your books. Where could they, where could they find out about them and maybe order them? Well, sure. They're available on Amazon. They are available on barnesandnoble.com. They are also available at Barnes & Noble uh, locally. Uh, um, They they could be found, I think, I know at Harpel. They used to, they they had them there. uh, Walgreens uh, currently has them. We just, uh, we signed a deal with Walgreens, so they're carrying the books. But if you want to get it on the computer, um, uh, you could go, definitely go to Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And Barnes & and if you want to physically go down to a Barnes & Noble, there's an Arcadia section where they have all the different neighborhoods, including my titles. Uh, you know, I don't have any of your books. So I got to get one. And the next time you and I have met a couple of times face to face in the studio yeah. pre COVID, but uh, the last couple of uh, interviews have been on zoom. When we get together the next time, I'm going to bring a couple of titles and with a big Sharpie and <laughs> say okay. here, please inscribe away. Um, moving back to Whitestone. Um, let's move into the 19th century. Uh, um, the neighborhood was called Clintonville for a while after then New York Governor DeWitt Clinton, mm-hmm. uh, who also was the power and influence behind that great New York uh, uh, industrial project, the, the Erie Canal. Um, wh- what stake did uh, Governor Clinton have in the area and, 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 and what was his history there? Um, well, I know that he owned a, a property here. Uh, DeWitt Clinton comes out of Glendale, Maspeth. That's where his uh, estate was located. Uh, but he did own a lot of property here in Whitestone, uh, in the Clinton family, that is. Um, and years ago, if a neighborhood was uh, very pro-democratic or very pro-Republican, uh, they would sometimes uh, rename a town or co-name a town the way you do like a street co-naming in our time uh, to, to honor someone in the hopes of uh, generating votes, uh, in the hopes that if they do get into office, they will um, – you know, shine more favor onto that area that named themselves after uh, the, the person of note. Uh, the same situation it was with uh, Astoria. You know, it's named after John Jacob Astor, uh, who I think had never even been to Astoria, but they named it in his honor, hoping that him being one of the wealthiest men in the world would put money and funding into the development of the area, uh, which he did not. Oh, he didn't, but other people did. Other people did, yes. Yeah. Um, then, you know, let's move past the Civil War, and there was a railroad that was built, which later became the Whitestone branch of the Long Island Railroad. Oh, yeah. How did, how did that impact the development of – oh, by the way, just uh, – uh, I forgot to ask you. Um, when, did the, when did the neighborhood become colloquially known and, and, and commonly known as Whitestone? Uh, really, you see it uh, 
all through all through its history from the 1600s through the 1800s but then by the by the uh after the civil wars when the term whitestone is used uh, uh, widely um sometimes you see it spelled differently sometimes it's two words it's a uh, you know white stone uh on certain british maps they have it as whitestown uh you know so it's all these different types of spellings but uh, really after the civil war uh, during the 1870s, 1880s, everyone starts calling it Whitestone. Uh, in documents that you see all the way up until the 20s, it's noted as Whitestone, Long Island, because uh, geographically we are part of Long Island, um, but we are part of New York City. But Queens County did not become part of New York City. It was its own independent county until January 1st, 1898. And uh, everything that is today Nassau County was part of Queens as well until 1900. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Um, so when did when did the railroad open in Whitestone? Sure. So the railroad was a, a major feature in Whitestone's development and its history. Um, I'm sure that the area would be, uh, I think, somewhat different, you know, if the railroad was still here, if we had like our own Long Island Railroad line coming into the area. Um, so it's one of those uh, changes in history that people – uh, still talk about to this very day. The, the railroad came here to Whitestone in 1869, in April of 1869. Uh, one of the reasons it came here was because of Conrad Poppenhusen, who was the rubber manufacturing king of of uh, College Point. He helped develop College Point. It was a factory town. And Whitestone also became a factory town. It belonged to a, a, a manufacturer by the name of John Locke. And... Um, his factory, the warehouse building, still stands to this day on Clintonville Street and 11th Avenue, opposite the little Dunkin' Donuts on the corner. That facility is the uh, is the manufacturing plant, and his product was chinaware and uh, stamping. Stamping is uh, when you see beautiful, those beautiful ceilings in an old uh, business, like that's from the 1800s, early 1900s, and you see those beautiful designs stamped into the tin roof. Mm-hmm. Uh, or the tin ceiling of the establishment. That's that was what was being manufactured there. So they brought the railroad here to Whitestone collaboratively to not only transport their products, but to also introduce the latest technological achievement of the day, which was the railroad. And the railroad was here until February twelfth, nineteen thirty-two, when it closed. Hmm. But certainly, while it was open, contributed to the development and the and the economic progress uh, of of Whitestone. Well, uh, Whitestone much. is also pretty picturesque, right there on the you know where uh, Long Island Sound and the East River yeah. sort of meet. Um, what uh, you want to talk about seaside pavilions? Yes. So Whitestone um, had a very uh, illustrious history of being home to many seaside resorts and pavilions. Here we had Stimmel's Pavilion and the Dewar's Pavilion, uh, which were located at the foot of 152nd Street down by the water, uh, also down by um, where the CYO used to be. Uh, those were beer, German beer halls, beer gardens, and dancing halls. Uh, and this was a tradition that had kind of spilled over from neighboring College Point, which until uh, Prohibition had more bars and uh, beer halls than any other area in the United States. Wow. Good time. Are there any left? (laughs) No, there are none left. Um, Well, White's, you know, we talked about, you talked about uh, uh, 
space in mansions. Um, Whitestone, a lot of people don't realize this, but Whitestone was almost like an East Coast version of, of Beverly Hills. Uh, there were some famous people and some even some movie stars who lived there. Um, who lived there? And, and can you see remnants of their houses now? Sure. Um, well, uh, the, uh, the crown jewel, historically speaking, of Whitestone is the Hammerstein Mansion, which is a, on the Register of National Landmarks. It's on the New York uh, Landmark uh, list as well. Um, and that mansion was uh, built by Arthur Hammerstein in 1922-1923. Uh, um, there were other many famous people who lived here. Uh, some of them were longtime residents. Uh, some of them were not. Uh, because of Kaufman Studios, which in those days was known as uh, Paramount Studios in Astoria, the people, uh, the celebrities who were making a lot of silent films out there in that area would rent homes uh, or apartments and live here in in Whitestone. Uh, then if you had a, an occasion where you had a celebrity who did live here, if they had another house that they would live in, they would kind of rent it out or loan it out to one of their one of their friends if they needed to stay there for some time. Well, you mentioned at the beginning of the show that some of these houses became abandoned and they were abandoned when, yes. when, when you were growing up. How is it that, that they were just abandoned and, they, and, and no one was living there, not even for low rent? It, it was just one of those things. The, the homes, they, they were sold off or maybe family took them over and they were not locally based um, and they just kind of fell into to disrepair. But I know of three homes that were like that for a very, very long time. Uh, one of those homes was actually knocked down uh, just several months ago. It was right here in back of our building. It was uh, St. Anne's Academy for Girls. Um, and it was in a beautiful private home down by the water. It was on Riverside Drive. And that home uh, had been abandoned for, for many, many, many years. And it just stood there on a huge property, just neglected. But the funny part was about was about the Hammerstein Mansion. We used to actually play in that house as as kids. Uh, you know, it's not not exactly. Uh, uh, <laughs> it, Probably couldn't it, happen it, now. Playing in abandoned houses sounds like my it, childhood a little bit. But <laughs> yes, I mean, uh, I mean, it is it is trespassing. But we would go there and we would, you know, you couldn't go in because it was it was very dangerous. You know, the floors were missing. You know, but there was. Um, you know, but it was kind of cool to be on this property that was, I mean, it was just so neglected and, and the, the estate so big, but just, but just sat there for, for many, many years. And you would go in there and we used to take our dog down there for a walk. You know, and it was just one of those local oddities that it just, it just sat there. Well, Jason, in the, in the minute or two we have left in the segment, I, I do want to ask you about something not having to do with home construction, okay. um, but about the, the famous bridge that partly bears the neighborhood's name. There are four bridges that cross the East River into Queens. Only one of them actually bears the name of a Queens neighborhood, and that's, and that's or shares it, and that's the Bronx Whitestone Bridge. Yes. Um, why do you regard the bridge as the greatest suspension bridge ever built? Because it was the first um, modern suspension bridge built of its time. It was uh, constructed by Othmar Aman, who also designed and constructed the Throg's Neck Bridge. Um, it is, uh, so it is the first uh, modern-style uh, suspension bridge. Uh, it is also the, the infamous Tacoma Narrows Bridge, which you see in those famous videos that sways in the wind. Uh, and, and then collapsed. <laughs> and then collapsed. Yeah, was actually 
uh, a cousin of the Whystone Bridge. And after that infamous collapse, uh, the bridge was retrofitted uh, so that it didn't move in the wind because it also had this, it also suffered the same sort of um, uh, structural um, phenomenon in the wind. It would, it would move, it would sway. And that was one of the only complaints, critical complaints about driving on that bridge in the 30s and in the 40s, that the bridge would physically move. But after the the Coma Narrows bridge collapsed, it was retrofitted so that it wouldn't move or dance so much, as they say. Mm. Well, Jason, thank you so much for being our guest on the first part of our show about Weinstone. My first guest has been Jason Antos. Jason is the president of the Queen's Historical Society, noted author on Queen's History. His first published book was on Whitestone, which you can get on Amazon.com, Amazon.com. Sound like I'm English, Amazon, Amazon Amazon.com. And um, Jason's latest book on uh, Douglaston and Little Neck will be coming out in February. Jason, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to speak with our second guest, who is an entrepreneur and who owns one of the oldest businesses in Whitestone. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the mind behind leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The mind behind leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors, Christopher Pappas, mortgage specialist at TD Bank. To find out how Chris can help you with all of your residential home mortgage needs and tailor a mortgage that's right for you, please call Chris at 203-512-3918. Support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, 
focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our show is about New York, its neighborhoods, its history, and the myriad textures of our amazing city. There's another great show on the air about New York and specifically about the business of real estate. Good Morning New York with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. You can hear him on voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like the show on Facebook, and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles there are Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One other note before we get to our second guest, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about real estate, when I'm not on the air, I'm a real estate agent in our amazing city where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Our next guest is George Isikidis. George was born and raised in Queens, and his family moved to Whitestone in 1981. During his sophomore year, George picked up a part-time job as a stock boy in a local pharmacy in Whitestone, Harpel Chemists. It's there that he met his mentor who convinced him to go to pharmacy school. After a year of attending Hofstra University, George transferred to St. John's and pursued a career in pharmacy. He continued working at Harpel's, and once he graduated, he became a pharmacist there, ultimately buying the store he worked and grew up in. How is that for the classic American and New York business dream? George's younger brother, Joseph, followed suit, and together they purchased Harpel Chemists from his mentor, Joel Hiller, in July 2002. Harpel has been serving Whitestone since 1906, and they had been honored to continue providing such an important health business in their community. But they didn't stop in Whitestone. George and Joseph opened two more locations in Queens, one in Astoria and one in Bayside. George's activity and business doesn't stop there. Uh, He's the president of the Whitestone Merchant Association, and he does volunteer work. He's the vice president of his parish council for Holy Cross Greek Orthodox Church in Whitestone. He still lives in Whitestone with his wife, Catherine, and two children, Sophia and Joseph. George, a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. Pleasure. Nice meeting you. You're from Queens originally. What neighborhood did you grow up in before you moved to Whitestone? I actually was born in Jackson Heights and then moved to Flushing, um, where I lived until 1981, like you mentioned, and then ultimately moved to moved to Whitestone. How old were you when your family moved to Whitestone? I was 10 years old. Oh. 10 years old, yeah. And how old were you when you started working at Harpels? I was 15. So I just completed, uh, not just completed, I've completed 30 years, so it kind of gives my age away. Of, uh, of being at Harpels, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, as, as someone who grew up, as someone who worked in the neighborhood where I grew up in Sheepshead Bay, I, I sometimes would, would go up and down Sheepshead Bay Road looking looking for work. How did you get your job at Harpels? Yeah, so it's an interesting story. Um, and, and anybody that knows me knows my, my bus story. So I'll share that if you if you will. Um, in Whitestone, I, I went to Holy Cross High School, where which in my sophomore year, um, or anybody that went to Holy Cross, I'm assuming any high school, we had to clean out our lockers and, and kind of clear them out for, for winter for winter recess. And, and on my way home, I um, I decided instead of getting off on 8th Avenue, which is where I live, I'm going to get off of 14th Avenue and I'll, and I'll walk up, um, which was very odd because, again, I lived on 8th. And, and so I, I decided to get off. And as I got off the, the, the bus, I happened to notice a help wanted sign in, in, in the village of, of Whitestone in, in the local pharmacy. And 
not knowing any better, I, I walked in with all my bags and, and all my supplies from, from my locker and applied for a job. And um, I remember the day perfectly. It was a winter day. Um, and the owner at the time, Joel Heller, was, you know, I just kind of walked up to him and he says, no, no, he's like, I'm not really looking for anybody right now because he was just busy. And as I started walking away, he said, you know what, come back and, and see me tomorrow, which is what I did. Um, and, and the reason I bring up that bus story and, and I relate it to a lot of the, 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 the kids that kind of go through the same steps that I did is I really believe that there's a few times in life that your destiny kind of uh, calls out to you. And me getting off that bus was my was one of my was one of my points. Wow! And the rest they say is history. Yes. Um, when you first went to college, did you plan to study pharmacy originally? I didn't. I didn't. I, like I said, I started working here as a sophomore. Uh, my my vision was was to be a lawyer. So I was I was set on becoming a, a lawyer, and, and I planned on going to Hofstra to pursue law. Um, and my my eventual mentor uh, Joel, that owned the pharmacy that I was working at was steadfast on me becoming a pharmacist. And, and he he pushed and he persuaded me. And he's like, no, no, you're going to make a good pharmacist. So um, I did go to Hofstra for the first year and, and then ultimately switched over to uh, switched over to pharmacy. Mm. It's as a business owner. Did, did you have any concerns? About, I mean, you, you studied pharmacy, George, but but did you it, it's buying a pharmacy is, is, a, is a complicated business. There are all these regulations, there are medications, and there's the whole area of, of health and well-being beyond just providing script. Did you have any concerns about a pharmacy being the first business you would go into as a business owner? Uh, absolutely. Um, especially coming from, you know, coming from two immigrant parents um, who really didn't have any uh, business background. Um, I had tremendous concerns. Um, but I also knew that I had a great privilege that uh, many others didn't. Um, growing up in the pharmacy world, Joel gave us access to so much information that I probably wouldn't have had anywhere else. So I, by the time it was all said and done, I felt like I had an upper hand um, in the runnings of, of, of a business. Did you buy the business and did your brother then come in later or did you both buy Harpels together? No, we both, we both bought Harpels together. I'm, I'm two and a half years older than Joseph. Um, so I practiced pharmacy for a couple of years. Um, he graduated uh, then we both continue practicing as Joel prepared for his retirement, and then ultimately, um, and then ultimately moved on. Yeah. As you and Joseph uh, bought the business and took it over and sort of uh, made it your own, um, did you expand any of the lines of services that you provided to your customers um, in the area of of wellness and and good health? Absolutely, absolutely. Pharmacy is is just like any other industry is is forever changing, um, and you know quickly we found out that. Pharmacy wasn't just about providing medication. Um, it was about providing wellness. So over the years, um, and especially more recently, um, we've looked into ways that we can improve people's overall wellness as opposed to just providing a product for them. So we've provided products um, like our medication adherence package or our Medipack program. Um, we've shifted our lines um, to get away from traditional pharmacy things, um, more towards herbals, vitamin supplementation, juice bars. Um, all three of our locations have juice bars. Um, so again, trying to approach wellness as opposed to just providing medications. 
Wow, you know something? It's interesting you say. You know, history sometimes repeats itself. That that you have juice bars in a pharmacy, but you know, one of the I didn't tell you this before we went on the air, but um, uh, my grandfather was a pharmacist. Um, he actually, uh, I think, he opened up his pharmacy in Middle Village back in the in the late twenties. And my grandmother used to tell me about uh, the soda fountain <laughs> she would make. You know, uh, and that was an important part of their business. So to hear that um, you provide refreshment, but also probably a little bit healthier than egg creams and malteds <laughs> from the drug store absolutely those days um how long after you you and joseph owned harpels and whitestone did you decide that you would um open up pharmacies in other neighborhoods in queens um it wasn't it wasn't that long after it was with, within the first um five or six years after owning the, the first location we realized that we wanted to expand um practices that we had in whitestone um providing that same type of community feel feel um, to other neighborhoods that we were that we were familiar with, and that's why we ultimately went to our second location, which was in Astoria, a, a community that was very similar in my eyes to, to Whitestone, and then and then to uh, and then to Bayside. Mm. All right. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with George Isakidis, the founder, well, the the owner and partner. He didn't found it. Sorry, that would make you a lot older than <laughs> the years you you fessed up to a couple of minutes ago. Uh, Harpel's Chemists in Whitestone and also in a story in Bayside. But we're focusing on the original business in Whitestone. We'll be back in a minute. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. Are you a curious person always asking questions? Do you desire to be in the know? Then join me, Antonia, host of So Now You Know, Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. Listen in as I attempt to satisfy that curiosity. I will be talking with amazing everyday people. Join the fun. So Now You Know on Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. We're back to Rediscovering New York in episode 80. Our episode tonight is on Whitestone in Queens. My second guest is George Isakidis. George is a partner and owner in Harpel Chemists, which started in Whitestone and now has other locations in Astoria and Bayside. Um, George, describe the vibe of Whitestone. What is it that you like about it? Um, Whitestone has always been to me a very family-oriented um, location. Um, the stores, the houses... Um, seem to always have that um, that local, old-fashioned neighborhood mentality and approach. Um, and it's something that's always um, just drawn me to it. 
Is Harpel's in the original location now that it wasn't when it opened in 1906? It's across the street. So we're on right now we're on the corner of 150th Street and 14th. Originally, it was literally right across the street um, and then ultimately moved, um, I think, just two short years after um, it was open. Is there anything that you feel that makes Whitestone unique, especially compared to the two neighborhoods where you have your other businesses? Um, I've always I've always thought of Whitestone as as a nestled community, and by that I mean I've always told everybody that Whitestone is the type of place that people want people are coming to Whitestone. You're not driving through Whitestone. You're not um, because we're surrounded um, we're surrounded by waters. Most of the time, Whitestone is the destination of where you're trying to go, so it keeps us very quaint, but also geographically. It's 20 minutes away from everything. We want to go to Manhattan. It's right over a bridge. We want to go to Long Island. It's it's right over there. So we're conveniently located, close to everything, but still nestled away, kind of uh, to our own. And of course, just a hop, skip, and a jump from uh, the Bronx, absolutely, <laughs> right the bridge, absolutely. Um, you've lived in Whitestone for decades, and now you've operated a business there for a long time. 15 years have you own you own your business? Is it? Uh, 2002, so yeah, it's just... Uh, Almost 20 years, okay, 18 years. Um, how do you think the neighborhood has changed since you have since you moved there and since you, you bought Harpels? Yeah, um, the homes have definitely gotten bigger. Uh, the ranch homes that had um, ranch-style you know, properties um, have turned into those beautiful uh, mansions and, and, and just beautiful homes. Um, the village, the, the business district in itself um, certainly has seen its influx of bigger national stores, um, whether it's a pharmacies or, or some of the national name stores. But what I, what I still love is, is that the neighborhood still supports its local um, mom and pop stores. In that sense, you must have come to know a good number of your customers well, given the nature of your business. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, and, and that's what, again, what my affinity to Whitestone is, is that because it's, it's a generation, a generation um, type of feel. You, you, have, you have grandparents that have owned homes that pass it on to their children that pass it ultimately on to their those grandchildren. Um, so when I speak to, to when I speak to my patients, it's I can relate to the parents, the grandparents, and now their children. So it, it creates a tremendous bond um, for what I do. As long as you've been part of the fabric of the community, George, is there anything, this is kind of a little bit of a trick question, but I like to throw trick questions from time to time. Sure. Is there anything about, about the neighborhood that, that ever surprises you, that, that sort of hit, takes you, you know, unexpected? Yeah, uh, you know what, there, there is. I've, I've always been amazed how Whitestone has the, the ability to, it's going to sound a little weird, but the ability to come together. Um, even in today's tough times, um, Whitestone still kind of watches out for each other. Um, and I think that's no more evident than our civic groups and, and um, people knowing what's going on in their neighborhood, uh, whether it's a slight increase in crime or, or, or a new store that's coming into the neighborhood. Um, it's, it's always on everybody's um, lips, um, which is, in my opinion, a very good thing. People are watching out for one another. You're the president of the Whitestone Merchant Association. Was there any, um, did you just get involved or was there some defining moment where you said, I have to, I have to become involved in this, uh, in, in, in this local business organization? Uh, yeah, no, it, I mean, it was, it was after, after being in Whitestone, after being in Harpels for, for so many years, I felt that there was, there was a time for, for, for the merchants to kind of come together and like they say, for the greater of the good of, of, of all, um, improve improve the area improve the things that we all kind of see as as being shortcomings of the of the neighborhood um and and just gather a great group of people um and, and form this merchant association 
you mentioned shortcomings. Is there anything as a business owner that that you struggle with in Whitestone that you think is is specific to to the neighborhood? Um, specific to the neighborhood, I, well, listen, running any type of business in New York City, we, we know comes with its <laughs> with its with its uh, rough roads, you know, between regulatory agencies and, and rules and regulations that are for, forever changing. Um, with our with my particular business, obviously, insurances are are are, are always um, a, a problem. But Whitestone in general, I I feel the, the diversity of, of the businesses that that are here. Um, could be could be expanded. Having having a, a bigger a bigger diversification of, of different types of businesses would be, I think, worthwhile for Whitestone. What kind of businesses have you given thought to? The kind of businesses that you would that you would welcome, that you would like to see, or that you think the community would would receive well? Yeah, I, I mean, my opinion, and it's going to sound again silly, but social so a social component, um, whether it's better eateries or, or improved eateries or more eateries, um, cafes, lounges, places where a young couple can kind of go out on a first date or, or even a couple that's been married for, for 50 years, um, go out and, and, and enjoy each other's company. Um, it, it just seems like we, we do have, we do have a nice, uh, a mix, um, but it would be nicer if we had a, a, a little bit bigger. Well, the original Harpels was your first business and now you've opened two others. Do you ever see yourself opening up a different kind of business, maybe even in Whitestone? Uh, absolutely. Uh, Joe and I are, are, are always up for any type of new challenge. Um, as long as it brings excitement um, and it, as long as it brings help to other people. Uh, Joe and I are very big on being able to provide um, for our communities. Uh, it gives us a sense of, of, of being and, and a sense of um, togetherness with what we do. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. If you could look into a crystal ball for the place that you spent most of your life in and, and have owned your business in for 18 years, um, have you ever thought about how Whitestone might continue to change, what it might look like in a number of years' time? Um, That's another I, trick question. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Um, I, I, would hope, I would hope that it would continue on the path of, of that family virtue that I mentioned earlier, where we're still able to have a great diversity within this tiny little town. You mentioned earlier about, about the great diversity that Queens itself has, um, but continuing that diversity within Whitestone um, and, and continuing that, that, that small togetherness feeling um, that, I, that I think is just, it's a good overall feeling. Mm. You, you know, you mentioned before about businesses that you think uh, Whitestone doesn't have that might be good to have. As a business owner, would you have any particular advice for someone looking to open up uh, a new business in, in the neighborhood? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, first, be honest. Um, be part of the community. Um, take pride in, in, in the business that you open or the home that you purchase or any other dealings that you have. Um, again, Whitestone, in my opinion, is, is, is a very caring and a very tough community. Uh, as long as you're, you're, you're transparent and you're, and you're um, honest with what you're providing, um, this community is also extremely, extremely loyal. Mm. One other question, is, is there anything that you do uh, that people can order, any, any particular products that, that are special to Harpels that they can get online? Uh, uh, and, sure. and, and how could they find out about those? Sure. I mean, uh, the easiest, besides vis- is visiting the locations, uh, would be going to our website, you know, Harpels, harpelsrx.com. Um, it gives you kind of a, a breakdown of all the, all the services that we provide, as well as giving you all the information about the, the locations that we have. Um, and my favorite is picking up a phone. Uh, you know, we're always here for, we're always here and, and 
we take great pride in answering our calls. I don't have an automated system where 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 phones are being answered by a, by a robot or a machine. Um, so pick up a phone and, and even just say hi and, and ask away. I got to ask you one more question. Um, uh, you must deliver being a pharmacy, and you have a, a, a juice business, and people like in New York love to pick up the phone or go online and we can order anything. We don't have to go out of our homes. Do you order uh, fresh, fresh pressed juice? Do you, I mean, do. do you, do you uh, deliver it? We do. We do. Actually. Good. Yeah, we do. And what's uh, your website? So it's harpels, H-A-R-P-E-L-L-S-R-X.com. Great. Well, George Isakidis, thank you so much for being our second guest on our program about Whitestone. Pleasure. Listeners, you've just joined us for a journey across the East River from where I am, across one of the two bridges on the East River, either the Triborough, known as the RFK Bridge, or the Bronx-Whitestone Bridge, to visit Whitestone in Queens. Our guests have been Jason Antos, the president of the Queens Historical Society and author of seven books in Queens, including one on Whitestone, and George Isakidis, a partner and owner in Harp Hills Pharmacy, which has been in Whitestone since 1906. If you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook, and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. The handles there are jeffgoodmannyc. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Chris Pappas, mortgage banker at TD Bank, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, and probate and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off. I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Halstead in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is the erstwhile Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. Talking Alternative. 
Are you a curious person always asking questions? Do you desire to be in the know? Then join me, Antonia, host of So Now You Know, Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. Listen in as I attempt to satisfy that curiosity. I will be talking with amazing everyday people. Join the fun. So now you know on Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 